Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, and welcome to the American Age Podcast. This is your host, C. Travis Webb, editor of the American Age, and I'm speaking to you from fire-ridden Southern California. Mm. Oh, well, I'm Stephen G. Fullwood. I am the co-founder of the Nomadic Archivist Project. I'm coming to you from Harlem, which is in Dire Straits, and it is about 73 degrees here, so autumn's coming in nice and slow and lovely. And I'm Seth Rodney. I am a managing editor of the Sunday edition at Hyperallergic and its newly minted opinion editor. Uh, uh, and what else do I do? Oh, yeah, I'm an author of a book on museums, and I'm a friend and a brother. And I'm coming to you from Newburgh, New York. Uh, this is to remind our listeners that we practice a form of what we like to call intellectual intimacy, which is giving each other the space and time to figure out things out loud and together. Um, and today we are, ta- I'm going to like, there's just going to be an ellipses because Stephen's going to actually introduce the topic. So <laughs> to, today we are talking about Teenage Nation. Teenage Nation, Teenage Nation. So there was some there was some back and forth over what the actual uh, title of the Mm -hmm. the episodes would be. So they made me choose one. Everybody, they made me choose one. It was T-shirt Nation (laughs) or Teenage Nation, and I feel like okay because I want to be friends with these guys that I have to choose one thing. (laughs) But they're both. (laughs) Um, So so Teenage Nation. um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, that evokes a number of things for me. I'm sure the same for Seth. But Stephen, why don't you kind of take us? into what you were thinking about it. Okay, so um, I've been thinking about the remarkable differences in the way that I've grown up versus my parents and the things that they lived through. And so I was born in 1966, so I was born the year, um, two years before King was assassinated. I was born the year of Black Power and um, and how that sort of came about. But I was also born during like the hippie movement, right, which also had a, a tremendous effect on my sensibilities as a teenager. Mm. Um I thought the changes weren't solely related to technology, you know, the boom in technology. But I was thinking that the idea of adolescence felt like it was stretched out a lot longer, maybe than my parents' age. Mm. Um, And I thought about norms and mores and other things that where people got married at a particular time and they went, you know, they were in college or the military or they had jobs for most of their lives. I feel like my generation, Generation X, was the last... Um, generation that had jobs for life, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up with comic books. I grew up with games. And that comprises a large part of the cultural dynamic that we live in today Mm. in terms of our films, in terms of what we call entertainment. Mm -hmm. A very interesting moment. Um, But I grew up with comic book culture, computer games, MTV, deconstruction, factories closing. I wasn't educated. I felt like I was entertained. So Mm. it was disco music, punk, hip-hop, crack. Divorce was more common. It was one of the things that's sort of like people getting divorced wasn't a big deal. But I think the generation before that, no, that was you that's stayed married. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a scandal. It's like getting mm. cancer. Remember, you got cancer, you didn't say anything about it. Mm. <laughs> you know, that it, it's an interesting moment AIDS and HIV. Mm. And so I was thinking about this idea of what adolescence was comprised of for my parents' generation versus my generation Mm -hmm. and how when I would look at pictures of them when they were younger, how come they always looked older, much Mm -hmm. older than me? I think it was... mm -hmm. You think it was? The dress, the style of dress. 
It was a style of dress, but they were no, remember, we're no longer wearing hats and suits everywhere. My gen- mother's generation, they were wearing, you know, the long skirts or the, um, you know, the, the teen tops, the, the bullet breasty kind of blouse, like the kind of blouse or whatever. The, yeah. Kind of blouse about. and sweaters and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think my generation brought their toys with them mm. <laughs> from childhood. Mm. And those are the people who are, you know, doing the movies, but also kind of shaping culture, the cultural dynamic. And so I have a couple more things to say, and then I have a question. And one thing is, is that when I think about movies, the Judd Apatow films about mm-hmm. the guy who failed to launch. Sure. Mm-hmm. Usually yeah. a white guy. He's like at home. People are like, why can't you such and such? Usually a little pudgy, but, but there's a sympathy for him. Mm-hmm. And he's mm-hmm. cast as sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, what's, what's that sympathy? And I was like, well, when I was younger, you had one or two choices. You had, you were learning to become an adult during adolescence in your teen years. Mm-hmm. And then if you didn't become an adult, what did that look like for you? Mm-hmm. And so what I want to begin with this conversation with is what was your teenage life? What did you expect? And, and were you aware of the kinds of things that were surrounding you that were shaping your sensibility? In hmm. entertainment, politics, um, whatever. Like, what were your thoughts about being a teenager or being an adolescent? Well, so I, you know, I played uh, a lot of role playing games when I was a teenager, and I read a lot of fantasy books. I was I was very adolescent when I was an adolescent, um, and as far as you know, like geeky pursuits. I feel like you know, role playing games is one of the the things that is kind of the the lag kind of the very tail end of things that have become cool that were previously nerdy. Like, I I mean, up until like last week, it was still geeky to play role-playing games, tabletop role-playing games with multi-sided dice and all this kind of stuff. So we're Um, we're talking things like Dungeons and Dragons, basically. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, thank you. Gotcha. And that was a big part of of what I did at that age. Um, You know, I I had other interests as well, but... um, but that was my 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 primary mode of socialization and socializing with friends. You know, I have a I have a lot more to say about the the teenage stuff, especially the way that you framed it, um, because I think I have a pretty fraught relationship with the way that American culture has um, is currently expressing itself. I mean, American culture's always had an adolescent, a very strong adolescent streak. Um, mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, right down at, at its founding. I mean, you know, the idea, I mean, there, there, there are ways in which uh, Jefferson was a kind of adolescent in, mm-hmm. in his ways of, of conceptualizing the country and the world and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and sort of not coming to terms with uh, kind of the, with the choices that were made. Um, so I, I think there's a strong streak of that in, in America, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get into. Um, but I, I do want to try and keep it close to, to what you had asked about. So for me, you know, as far as entertainment culture uh, is involved, I feel very at home in this world. Like mm-hmm. I read comic books all the time. Like mm-hmm. I devoured fantasy novels. I, you know, like I already mentioned the role-playing game. So, so a lot of the cultural products that, are, that have emerged – are things that are just super familiar to me, and uh, and I don't feel I don't feel out of step. I don't feel that they are strange. Um, I do feel they are consequential, but we'll get into that. So that's sort of my that you know that's 
that part of my adolescence uh, really makes me um, comfortable in in the kind of the current uh, milieu. So we have some similarities then among the three of us because although I didn't play role playing games, I did have I remember clearly from the time I was about twelve or thirteen have an enduring obsession with books, particularly uh, fantasy books. But I think where I started was I started off with Greek mythology, and then I moved on to Norse legends and fables, and then I moved into fantasy and science fiction. And so I remember actually subscribing to the science fiction book club. And get reading my way through, I belong to a book club too. That's right. I completely yeah. forgot that. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And you'd have to like mail the thing back in time, or they'd send you the books automatically, and then you'd be stuck mm-hmm. with having to pay for them. And mm-hmm. wow, um, okay. Piers Anthony, Raymond Feist, um, Isaac Asimov, of course, Ursula Le Guin, Ursula K. Le Guin. There's still some of those novels that I find as kind of key touchstones for me in the ways of my the ways of my thinking developed over time this mm-hmm. particular novel cards of grief by jane yolen still sticks up sticks in my mind because it, it described a, a society and i think it was the first time i sort of understood intuitively maybe subconsciously that what the writer was doing was he was she was describing an entire culture by by talking about these these rituals around grieving um, and, and yeah, anyway, I spent my, a lot of my teenage years was spent again, reading comic books. Um, mm-hmm. they definitely went to a phase where I kind of collected them, but I didn't really have enough. Did you DC or Marvel? Did you have a preference? Mm. I don't know why I ended up in the Marvel camp, but it was Marvel pretty much all the way. I mean, I would read DC, but I would. I, mean, I, I actually think it's because Marvel was better. That's why. Yeah, I think so. But also, well, but also, well. but also, the whole thing with Superman was Superman was ridiculous. I mean, it's like where do you go from Superman, right? Like everybody else is like a tier below because mm. he's fucking bulletproof. He can um, shoot. Um, um, lasers out of his eyes that can melt pretty mm-hmm. much anything. He can f- fly faster, move faster than anybody else. He can, you know, it, ridiculous. Anyway, comic books. But, uh, Stephen was about to say, what were you about to say? <laughs> oh, so, so when I was younger, I collected all kinds of comics, but ended up with Marvel. <laughs> and I re- realized that it was because DC, they their their storytelling at times wasn't as robust or as thoughtful. Mm. And I feel like Marvel had better art. They had better storytelling. Mm-hmm. Well, and, I- and then someone said it on um, one of those video essays that the Greek pantheon was DC, but that Marvel was really like, it's a family. The Fantastic Four. It's mm-hmm. a teenager. It's Peter Parker, a Spider-Man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? I, so there were more, there was more, I could touch more of it. And they had some of the Greek stuff going on there too with their gods and whatnot. But I felt that Marvel, like I can remember comics like from the first panel to the last mm. of how that impact it had on me and, and storytelling. I just felt like DC after a while, just they, they so, didn't try as hard to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they tried the, differently. The, the way that, that I, thought of it as, you know, sort of much later, obviously not when I was reading them, but Marvel were humans that got these sort of godlike or superhuman powers, but DC mm. were gods playing at being human. Mm, interesting. And 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 there there was there was there was a kind of 
there was a, a flip in the kind of germ out of which each of the stories grew. Um, mm. And and I, I definitely felt like that made Marvel far more relatable as far as like mm-hmm. kind of stage of life mm-hmm. sort of things that you would grapple with because these were just metaphors for, you know, various kind of adolescent struggles or struggles in the mm-hmm. political struggles in the adult world. Whereas DC was just like, well, what if there were a bunch of gods running around smashing things? <laughs> but that only takes part of it. It doesn't include Batman. It doesn't include a lot of right. characters who had it, a tragic origin and then became, uh, what do you call those things? Those people who go out, vigilantes. Yeah, so there's yeah, a lot yeah. of vigilantes in DC, I think. Yeah, yeah. but I was thinking about the Batman thing, as, just, as, just as Travis was saying that about gods playing at being humans. And I thought... Well, there's a way in which Bruce Wayne could be that to could fit that storyline only because he's this mega rich guy. So in some ways, he's like already above the fray. You yeah. know what I mean? I, I think Batman fits the the god role because he's sort of the he's the inverse of of the sun god, right? I mean, Superman is the sun god. Mm. Um, I mean, this mm. is um, uh, this is Grant mm. Morrison's argument, right? In his. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Um, Super Gods, I think, is the, the great the book. book. Yeah, yeah, yeah book. it is really good. Yeah. So, this is not my argument. This is his argument that that you know, essentially, Superman is the sun god, and uh, Batman is like you know, sort of a, a moon god, like a god of the night, and everything. Mm-hmm. Sort of, you know, kind of the flipped origin of everything. Mm. And and yes, it is true that Batman is literally a human, but in practice. He is, I mean, he is not concerned with everyday human relationships. This is not right. 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 He's, Mm -hmm. he's concerned with like defeating, like, you know, sort of the, the primal element of chaos in society. Right. Mm -hmm. Exemplified by like the Joker. Right. You know, like he's just, he's just not a person. (laughs) Right. right, right. I mean, in in any, in any discernible way. Anyway, I'm sorry. So, Mm -hmm. um, so go ahead. So, so Seth, you were saying about DC my Marvel. my teenage yeah. years. So <clears throat> there were three things, I suppose. That mm, now that I've had ch- a chance to think about it, um, um, rubbing up against um, you, your commentary, reading, playing sports. I loved to play basketball. I wasn't very good at it, but I just loved the feeling, the exhilaration of running around. So mm-hmm. go down to the. I lived about two blocks from a, a big park. And I used to go down and play, well, football and basketball with the guys who happened to be around. I remember feeling very much like I wasn't as tough as most of these guys and being kind of afraid of them constantly, which was really uncomfortable for me. And then what was the other part? Oh, yeah, the other part of my teenage years was feeling very much like I had this profound moment with my mom when I came home upset from school. And I was upset about something that happened at school, and I was having a really hard hard time articulating myself. And my mom was asking me questions that were just kind of dumb. And I could recognize they were dumb. And I thought, oh, wow, neither of you really have the skills to raise me. So that, those are the things I think that really marked my teenage years. Is it possible she was just distracted and irritated with your like annoying <laughs> teenage questions? <laughs> No, I think she was genuinely trying to reach me. Yeah, she yeah. was really trying, wow. and she just she just didn't know how. Yeah, yeah. So, Stephen, you said you collected comics. Uh, yeah, I collected that... comics, and in my adolescence, but 
they disappeared when porno came. <laughs> mm. So I went from Por- comics. Porno was always here, my friend. You, you just, you found it. <laughs> right. And so I think the first memory I have of it is being in the back of my uncle's car and seeing a half-hidden um, magazine called We, right? And mm. I remember going, what, what is this? Oh, you know, I didn't... Oh, oh, UI. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And of course, that. there's a busty woman on the cover, a white woman. Blonde. She's busty. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sitting there with my brother, and we look at it, and we're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> We've been missing out on the whole kind of life. <laughs> we're just like, comic books. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> but that, was, that had to be about eight or nine, because I remember feeling like... A lot of us could get in the back seat, which means we were small. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but that happened. And so I think it, they were overlapped. So it was still doing comic books until maybe 1980, which would have been like 13 mm-hmm. or 14 for me. But I remember music just charging in as well. And I had music all mm-hmm. my life. So when, from when I was younger, I had my mom's music and my older sister's music, Earth, Wind & Fire, big R&B mm-hmm. bands. But we also had, uh, we, list, we watched Hee Haw. We listened huh. to country music. We listened to huh. both hard rock and soft rock. Ohio was this really lovely. I had a mm. really good musical education in that sense because mm. I loved music. So I wanted to hear people sing it and play it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so music came in. So music comprises a great deal of what my adolescence and my teen years look like. Mm-hmm. And comic books that just dropped off in 1980, and I think it's because I was beca- I was a freshman. I don't know why mm-hmm. I dropped because m- other people were continuing to read comic books, mm-hmm. but I think it was music. I wanted to know more about music mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what it was, and I was reading like not adult novels mm-hmm. and novels for class and stuff like that. So. A hero, a hero ain't nothing but a sandwich. I didn't read that. Mm. But remember, I told you when I first saw the title and I saw the author's name, Alice Childress, mm. I was seven years old and I was looking at this poster and I go, they spelled her name wrong. It's supposed to be Alice Children. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> standing there holding up my hand with another kid looking at that poster. Mm. So anyway, no, I didn't read it. I heard nothing about a sandwich. 13-year-old heroin addict named Benji. Mm. I processed her papers at the Schomburg. A fascinating woman. Just mm. Alice Childress was an actress, a playwright, children's mm. author. The the federal go- the FBI couldn't find out how old she was because she kept changing her. <laughs> like she must have hidden uh, her. I don't know what they did, but they could. Wow. They had her name and everything wrong from like the beginning. Wow. Uh, FBI those FOIA. I don't want to get too far afield, but we're talking about those FOIA files. I would love to read histories about them. Hmm. Who was doing the work, you know, um, because they were so inept. When you read them, you're like going, what? Alice Children walked into her apartment building and they had another entrance, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there are two entrances. Then mm-hmm. there's a report where they say, we see her walking in, da, da, da. And then she walked in again. Like, it didn't occur to them to, like, check out the <laughs> building beforehand. Or, like, there were moments where I just reading, I would read the um, reports and go, you know, as far as re- as redacted as they were, that these were very young people, which mm. is very stupid old people, mm, you know, yeah. older people. They were just like, they I, were... No, I, it's funny you mentioned that, well, this sort of the age thing, it's appropriate, right? The adolescence thing, you know, so, so very young Thanks FBI that agents, that wouldn't, yeah. it wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, but, you know, the other, the other thing uh, where young people in this sort of extended adolescence and and maybe we can bookmark this and, and get back to it in a few minutes because um, mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to lose our 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 more revealing threads about what we were doing when we were teenagers but mm-hmm. um is 
you know, the people that write for The Economist, National Review, a lot of reporters at The Washington Post and New York Times, these people are very young. They're in their mid to late 20s, maybe early 30s, and they think they know what's up. They think they've, you know, they've they've made it from whatever out of whatever Ivy League education they came mm-hmm. from and, you know, they've they've read all the books and they they know how the world works. And, and they've so, been given a platform to tell this. Yeah. To tell these and so stories. All, yeah. all of these platforms are are very they're very adolescent in their character and in the mm-hmm. production. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I I actually do want to get back to that because I think it's an interesting direction to go. But so for so you transitioned <laughs> you transitioned yeah. to to cool teenage like preoccupations like music and all the rest of stuff like I did not. Oh, tell me why. So I did not. So I, I mean, it's not that I didn't like or listen to music. I did, and you know, I had um, one of my close friends. I I remember uh, I had one of my best friends when I was young, uh, Damian Himes, um, who was a transplant from a Dominican transplant from New York, and his family mm. came out, and he would his friend would send him mixtapes from mm. like you know, oh, nice. well you couldn't hear you couldn't hear rap on the radio out in in Southern California at that time when I was mm-hmm. a kid, you know. About what year is this? Early eighties. Um, okay. Yeah. So um, there was a was one radio station that started to play it at some point, but I would hear you know you know, so like Grandmaster Flash and like all this kind of stuff mm. because his cousins would send him these tapes or whatever and so it's not that i didn't enjoy that stuff i did enjoy it and i I listened to it and it certainly was a part of 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 sort of shaping me on some level but i never consciously or self-consciously began to engage with or delve into Mm -hmm. music whether it was that or you know depeche mode was a big deal at that Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. The Smiths, Soft mm. Cell, you know, all these. Yeah. Other, you know, mm. So, so I, you know, and I had friends that were very deeply involved in that stuff. So I got to kind of just like skim off of their tastes mm-hmm. and sound like, yeah, I was much hipper, hipper than I actually was. But I never actually, for me, it was like, okay, uh, like, I'm gonna I, I, I'm gonna create a story about this like band of orcs that you know ambush this like third level uh. wizard who doesn't has it like you know so like mm-hmm. this that was that is what I you know I'd be sitting in you know uh, I'd be sitting in class at school high school right. middle school or whatever just like deciding how many arrows my ranger was gonna have in his quiver like that was what I was yeah deeply deeply that's yeah some, deeply that's, preoccupied with <laughs> that's a ne- that's a next level nerddom right there <laughs> oh yeah 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 so I was like off so you know like in, you know they they're like the four stages of like social cast in India and like the Dalit or like the untouchables like i was off like the first three like you get to like you get to be reincarnated higher and higher i don't know if you guys know this about the the karmic system in india but if you're in the the first three if -hmm. you're in the first three casts like Mm -hmm. it's ultimately efficacious because then you can move up to being a kshastriya or a brahmin etc Okay. If you are an untouchable, you're not even on the karmic table. Like you're just off. Like you have Damn. so many lifetimes mm. left to live Damn. that like you you're untouchable. This is the untouchable class. So So I'm assuming the untouchable class is the lower classes. Yes, yes, no very much. Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean yeah. these are the people. I mean, it's honestly now that I'm explaining it, I feel quite bad for using it as an analogy because this is of oh. course just abject horrible racism. awful racism and poverty. 
I mean, just yeah. like justification. Yeah, off in the, the charts. Ugh. Yeah, you know, off yeah. the charts. Awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but for me, what I was going to say was that as far as like nerddom goes and geekdom, I was definitely in the untouchable class. Like this was, I was so far off uh -huh. from what would be considered cool that, you know, I was essentially invisible um, mm. in, in that, you know, in sort of, as far as cultural cachet went. So anyway, people mistake me, mistook me for you, but I wasn't <laughs> doing Dungeons and Dragons. I was like, this mm. is too tedious for me. You know, mm. so, and by the way, it wasn't cool either. What about you? <laughs> what about you, Seth? With your basketball I, fantasy reading? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, in the later years, actually, 16 and 17, when I was in college already, um, what happened to me was I got into music too, but into the alternative scene. So I was mm -hmm. listening to The Smiths and The Cure obsessively. Mm. And oh, I had yeah. a, a, I remember my first poster, music poster was a big poster of Morrissey. And wow. that was on my um, dorm room wall. And I went through this really kind of punk phase where I remember the first woman I slept with, Jennifer Gilmet, gave me a lock of her hair and I tied it up with, um, dental floss and I wore it in my ear. So uh, I got my Whoa. ear pierced and yeah. And then, um, oh, wow. at, and at the same time, um, how'd you thread the dental floss through your earlobe? I don't know. It was a hole there. I just did it. No, I figured it out. Um, <laughs> I, I also wore, I also wore paper clips, which for a while was stupid because then it got infected, but I was okay. Cause I figured it out in time. <laughs> and then, um, I also, I remember this, I had a pair of jeans that were kind of, Kind of, kind of ripped, light blue denim, and I'd written a lyric from one of the Smith songs on the left leg. So like, and I don't remember what I what I used okay. to write it, but I'd write I'd written a whole like lyric lyric uh, from the song um, down the left leg, and that mm. was something I really liked to wear a lot. So I was into the music thing, but I was also kind of invisible because I was this really tiny. I didn't grow until like later and like, like 17 was when I think I had my growth spurt. So I was mm. this like skinny, nerdy black kid who was super self-conscious and didn't, it took me a long time to learn to be social with people and learn to be comfortable mm. enough to tell people mm. about myself. Um, just, just, I kind of wanted to disappear to be honest. Like I kind of wanted to be invisible mm -hmm. because I just, I had a hard time dealing with, uh, public attention. Um, mm. That's my story. That's what happened to me. Yeah, I. Yeah, so uh, clearly introverts, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Seems yeah, like yeah. that sort of sound. I'm, I'm sorry, Stephen. You were about to say something. No, I, I'm still digesting what tra uh, what Seth said about mm. that's my story. I was like, mm. oh, but there's so many stories in this. <laughs> <laughs> so many questions I have for you, Mister mm. Lock of Hair, Mister mm. <laughs> mm. Suit. Like, what even went into that thinking? You're like, I just did it, and I'm like, but there was some thought. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe like it's some it, technology going on here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe it was that the guys like Robert Smith of the Cure. I don't know. Maybe like he did something like that, and maybe I saw mm -hmm. some mm -hmm. model for me, and and sure. I wanted to emulate them. Yeah, that, I think so. I'm guessing, and that yeah. was a, that was the time actually too. I was like perming my hair, so it was okay. like mm. I was like doing that and my hair was all crazy and 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 had a lot of product in it and was uh, yeah 
Yeah. We should definitely have a conversation about the alternative black guys, the ones mm-hmm. who didn't follow a particular trajectory around mm-hmm. what black maleness was, mm-hmm. because I'm surrounded with those those kind of males all the time, younger males, older males. I'm mm-hmm. surrounded by them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think they look for each other. They're like, you got out? I got out too. We got out. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, it's, a, it's still a weird thing to be among black folks. And when they ask you kind of what listen, music you listen to, you don't say R&B. They're kind of like, well, what happened? Like, what? what? And it's interesting. It's music and it's a certain kind of lifestyle. Cause I've, I've learned to just stay away from certain kinds of cultural folks who have different ways of expressing culture. Mm-hmm. Like my family is one thing. My family can... Very Christian, very gospely, very all that. I know them. I love them. Listen, my seat is at the, my seat is at the table. Mm. We can choose those other spaces, and we often do, mm-hmm. if, unless they're work or places we have to go. But overall, mm. I, I think about um, yeah, we should definitely have a conversation about the alternative black guy. Mm-hmm. I have lots mm. of thoughts about him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> M- me too. Good. Said the non-black guy. Absolutely, I want to hear those. But I remember, I had a conversation back then, and like when I was seventeen, and I just Mm -hmm. met um, Mingus slash Damien at Long Mm -hmm. Island University Brooklyn campus, and or maybe it was a couple years later, and we were talking about it, and we was like, and and I think we were looking at some film or some video of some black guy among a group of whites and they were doing something like, oh, it was like early cosplay. They were like okay. re- mm-hmm. reenacting some sort of medieval fantasy thing. Mm. And, um, and I remember. Was, was they, it with weapons? Probably. I, yeah. And, Scott, and, Society for Creative Anachronism. Yeah. This there we the, go. Yeah. It was, that, it was like, gothy. It was yeah. definitely yeah. gothy. And, um, and Damien said to me, why is it that every time you see one black person in that group, like he's always the one to get absorbed? And um, <laughs> and I thought, Ooh. man, that's so true. At the absorbed? time, ab- at the time, yeah, because it's like it it felt like those groups of people, the gothy kids, like there was always a black guy or a black mm-hmm. woman, yeah, and. But they were always sort of like in line with, it's, it's like he, they bent towards what, but I mean, it would make sense for that to happen. They bent towards what the group's aesthetic was as opposed to the other yeah, way. Yeah, no, come on though. That's what was just the other like group way? identity. Yeah, right. yeah was, identity, what was the other though. way though? The other way was they were supposed to go and go and, hey, stereotypical yeah. African American. <laughs> hey, everybody's got Afros now. No, right. Right. <laughs> no, right. No. right, right, right. Like they show up and they go, hey, I heard you got torn off. <laughs> um, ripped off, man. I've been looking for that album. Ripped off. <laughs> say what we say, wear what we wear. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, this is just, just group dynamics. Just, I know. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, actually, yeah. what what I when I when I hear that more, what I think is that you know you've there are exponentially greater risks as a black male, or I'm sure as a as a black female, to play at these more fringe social identities, especially in the 80s and 90s, yeah. because black masculinity was so fraught and, yeah. and, and, and and like constrained that like you really had to step outside of sort of the 
the acceptable cultural role and cultural symbol. Whereas if you were a, if you were a, a quote unquote white person, there's much more flexibility in that, right? right. You can sort of play at right. these other social identities right. in your teenage years and it's acceptable. But a lot and of that so, has to do with geography and, 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 and where you are like economically mm. as well. Mm. You know, oh, so, yeah. So Absolutely. it, it course, really course, definitely, of course, so of course. I, I knew that you, you, it was a generalization, but I was just like thinking about people that I've met and they all, not all of them, but some of them have similar stories. Some of them don't about the, what the kinds of choices they've made in terms of being an alternative kind of person. Some cases they were just, they were sometimes middle-class kids that moved to the suburbs Mm. And their their whole world was white, you know. Their whole mm. world was, you know, this kind of thing. And so they, some of them developed an affinity for it. Some of them didn't. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, there's all these sort of complicated um, nuances when it comes to the alternative person. My theory is that he or she or they are not as alternative as we think they are. This week's conversation is split into two parts. You just heard part one. And we hope very much you'll join us next week for part two of our discussion on Teenage Nation. Thanks for listening to the American Age Podcast.